about startups is that you learn new things all along the way and you would never have known it at that point in time. It's sort of a reveal as you go along. If you're truly building something brand new for the first time, right, nobody has the answers. This is different from like going and building something that already exists. If it already exists, you can more or less copy in and then you know it works, right? But if you're really building something that doesn't exist, nobody's going to be able to tell you that like what you're building is going to work or not. And nobody's going to tell you like how to build it for scale. So the only way to learn is to like either learn by proxy. So like seeing like what exists out there that might be similar or like just go and build it and then do the journey. And it's painful, but it's very instructive. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Paul Turn. In the day, I work a pretty normal job as a doctor in Singapore. But in my spare time, I interview successful people, mainly in Asia, with interesting career paths, hobbies or side projects. I trace their stories right back to their humble beginnings. And I ask, what do these unconventional journeys teach us? And can we similarly be more imaginative in what we do? Welcome to the Alternative CV Podcast. Hello everyone, my dear listeners, welcome back to the podcast after another all-too-long hiatus. Nevertheless, I have a very, very exciting episode to share with you today. So I sat down with Dorothea Koh, who is one of the most interesting startup founders I have met to date. Despite the fact that she was rocketing up through the ranks at some of the world's top medtech firms, i.e. Medtronic, Baxter, etc., to the point where she was country head of Singapore, Indonesia, Philippines, Brunei, Myanmar, at different points in time, she quit her job. And then she went on to start BotMD, which is a mobile-based AI chatbot that helps doctors access hospital information quickly and easily. So in part one of our two-part series, I'd start by talking to Dorothea about the initial phases of starting BotMD. We cover topics such as asking yourself if building a startup is really something worth dedicating your time to, the importance of having a co-founder and what that relationship looks like, how to test the basic assumptions around your product with low-code prototypes, and Dorothea's epiphany that turned the company around and helped them to find product market fit. This episode was a real blast, and I'm so excited to share it with you. It's one where I came away with so many notes, and I hope you find our conversation as fun and educational as I did. And of course, part two to come next week. So without further ado, this is Dorothea Cole from BotMD. Please enjoy. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. So before we begin, let, uh, let me just introduce you. You are currently the, the uh, CEO and founder of BotMD. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what BotMD does. Sure. So BotMD is designed to be an AI assistant for doctors. Think of it like a Siri, mm. but without the voice. Okay. So it's really meant to help like doctors search information that they need, be it the directory, the guidelines you know, schedules, or even like clinical information like drugs, you know, up to date. And we do it on your phone, right? So you have it like anytime, anywhere and available all the time. Mm. Okay. So just as a bit of context, right? You pick whatever measurement, whatever measure you want in terms of like number of employees, like number of uh, users, et cetera. Give us some context of of where BotMD is at. So we are very small. Currently we have about 30 people. We started the year with 15, Mm. so we kind of doubled in like three months. And we, at the moment, have about 
let me count, 15,000 users that have used and downloaded the app. About 5,000 of them are here in Singapore. And then the rest are like all around the world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and your goal is to get the 100 million by 40, right? My goal is to get to 100 million patients yeah. by the age of 40. But my goal for Bottom D is to have it be in every single doctor's phone mm. by the time we're done with the company. Yeah. 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 And we'll definitely go more into BotMD sure. later. But I'd like to take you like well all the way back and back okay. to where you started. And actually, when you started off, you, you did what it's quite traditional for a Singaporean to do and, and took a sure. scholarship and subsequently came back to work at a government agency. Correct. Yeah, so what was you, you know what's the time like in, in, in so the genesis of okay so it's actually interesting the genesis of where I think it all started is that I never wanted to be an engineer okay okay so my original plan was to do law okay okay and then I didn't get into the one school that I really wanted to get into which is Cambridge oh, which is right. ironic because okay. you went to Cambridge right so I had to have a plan B mm. So plan B was like, oh no, I didn't, you know, get law, right? So what do I do? So I started applying for like, you know, random scholarships and EDB gave me a scholarship, but they wanted me to do it in engineering. Okay. Mm -hmm. And for me, like engineering, you know, in a way, like I didn't really know what it was about. Okay. So I was like very resistant. I was like, no, I don't want to do engineering. I want to do like economics, you know, like something else. But they were like, no, you have to do engineering. So I was like, okay, well, if I have to do engineering... The only subject I really liked in science was biology. Okay. Okay, so I was like, fine, I'll do bioengineering. And for me, the first moment that I knew engineering was cool was when I started like building things. So the, the very first like product that we designed when I was a engineer in NU was a one-handed egg cracker for stroke patients. Okay. Mm. So when we built it, and I actually remember this, like we built this shitty little prototype and it was like, you know, cobbled together out of like random hardware that we bought. But seeing a patient use it and crack like eggs, I actually remember that moment. I can actually remember that moment. I looked at it and I said, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Like I just built something that somebody used and it helped them. Yeah. Right. And from that moment, I was like, okay, I really want to be an engineer and I really want to go build products that help people. So, so this yeah. uh, genesis of like wanting to be, wanting to build sure. stuff, yep. be a startup founder yep. started from university when you... Yes. So I think I was like 18 years old. So, so from Noxton, I went to uh, Stanford, right? And you know, like you and you're immersed into a bubble of entrepreneurship, right? Everybody mm. around you is trying to start something. Okay, so like for me, it's like I really want to start something. At the age of 18, I tried to start a, let me remember this, Alzheimer's diagnostic company out of my apartment, which totally tanked. <laughs> I mean, not surprising, right? Actually, I don't actually even really know what was going on. I mean, I guess we were young and stupid and naive, right? So we, you know, we actually bought like a, so we had to run like lab experiments, mm -hmm. okay, in my apartment. Right? No, like, clean hood, nothing, right? It's like, literally, so it's like, okay, we need to, like, turn these tubes. So what we did is that we actually went on Craigslist, which is like, the you yeah. know, it's like classified as that, right? And we bought a George Foreman grill. <laughs> you know those chicken yep. rotisserie grill things? Because, yep. you know, the lab equipment's so expensive, right? So we did that. We bought that. Then we snipped off the uh, heating element. Mm. We taped, like, test tubes to the grill. And we would run these experiments in my apartment. 
to like quote stuff and uh, this is random stuff and like when I think back on that I'm like wow I don't even know what I was smoking at the time like to think that that was gonna go anywhere right yeah. but it kind of like sparked a desire in me to really want to like build and run my own thing right so you know and then you know reality hits right it's like 18 years old, I want to start a company and people are like well you know starting a company is really hard right starting a company in health is doubly hard yeah okay you cannot just randomly code up a healthcare company in a garage okay you actually have to understand like you know fda right approvals patient safety how does it work so they're like maybe think about spending some time in like bigger setups right learn okay so rather than like going and starting my own thing like right away I was like, okay, maybe I should take the advice and like go learn. So I spent about like 10 years in government, in industry, right? Living in like China, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, the US, and really traveling around the world. And I think like for me, like seeing scale helps, right? When you see how like big companies operate, you really learn like what being global looks like. Right. So when I started BottomD, I'm like, I really want it to be global. Right. I just want to start a company that's like regional, like only in, you know, Southeast Asia. I really want it like everywhere. Right. I don't think I would have had that dream at 18. Right. At 18, I just wanted to build stuff. I was like, it's cool to build stuff and it's cool to like have my own thing. But I had no like idea what that would be like. I see. Yeah. yeah so, so let's kind of double click into that sure. in terms of that, that learning process about going global. So after coming, after doing like, for example, Northwestern, and then you did sure. a, the Stanford Biodesign yep. course, you came back to EDB. Yep. And at the point in time, you were, were you sure already that, okay, my, my, what I want out of life is to yes. um, go build stuff. Okay. Yes. So was yes. that behind the decision to, to leave, leave yes. EDB? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I love EDB. EDB is such a great organization, but like it, is very comfortable. Mm. And I really wanted to do something that would challenge, you know, sort of like the way I thought about things, right? So I was like, I'm going to do the counterintuitive thing and actually leave and go learn. And when I left, I, you know, I, I didn't even know if that was the right thing to do, right? It was like, why don't you just stay on and like, you know, build something aside. But I was like, well, you get lazy if you stay in an environment for too long. Right, your brain starts to go into autopilot. Okay, so the same thing happened to me when I was um, at a very big company after that, right? When I left, okay? The reason why I quit, right, was because I knew I wanted to stay. Okay, and knowing that I wanted to stay made me realize that I couldn't stay because, in a way, to like grow and like learn, you always need to be uncomfortable, right? If you're too comfortable, then you end up like in autopilot mode. Okay, so for me, like every time I feel myself getting too comfortable, I'm always like, this is a problem. Yeah, it's very counterintuitive. Yeah, that's a very counterintuitive yeah, point of view. That was what I was going to say. And I'm sure that there must, was there an element of fear in making the decision? Because what it seems to me is that you, in fact, embrace that fear and discomfort and yes. that drives you to. So the funny thing about me is that I hate roller coasters. <laughs> okay, so I hate heights and I hate roller coasters. Like, you cannot pay me enough money to get me on a roller coaster. I mean, my brother has tried many, many times and I hate, I hate the experience. 
But the weird part is that my life is kind of like a roller coaster. And I wonder if that's like part of that, right? It's like I don't like roller coasters, but my life is like that. And yeah, I don't get scared too easily. So in a way, like if you want to be a startup founder, you have to be very comfortable with failure. Right? It has to be part and parcel of the journey. And you have to deal with it. And you have to be like totally okay that things might tank. It might go belly up. And then you're like, fine, do it again. Right? So if you look at like every new venture in that way, then you don't really get scared. What is, right? the, what is the mental yeah. model that brings you to that place? Is it kind of like, okay, I build up all these skills such that even if I yes, go to zero, yes, then yes, I can... Yes, yes, yes. I see it as a series of experiments. Okay. Okay, so like this engineer, I mean, it's like you're running experiments. So it's like in running experiments, like which variables do you know and do you not know, right? So you control for the ones that you know and the ones that you don't know is a learning journey. So it's like you do it and you try it and you say, well, okay, uh, did it work, did it not, and then why? And so like for everything that I do, I look at everything as an experiment, mm-hmm. right? And I'm perfectly comfortable with experiments failing and I'm perfectly comfortable with like cutting it off and being like, if you move on. So there's a great example of this, like when we started BOMD, so we had this vision, right? It's like, can we put an AI in the hands of every doctor in the world? Okay, mm-hmm. how would we do that, right? And like, if we did that, what would they search? What would they want, right? So prototype number one that I built, right? Because I, I incubate ideas all the time. It's like prototype number one. It's like, how do I go test this? It's like, if I were to put an AI in the hands of a doctor, what would they ask? And how do I do this? Like with no code, right? So zero coding. So I was like, all right, I think I know how to run an experiment. So I found these like five random doctors from like, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines. I said, hey guys, you know, I have this like thing that I want you to try. No obligation. You don't have to like it. I just want to know feedback. Okay. So they're like, what do we do? I said, well, you go online, you have Facebook, right? And they're like, yes, you have Facebook. You go on Facebook, you add a friend called HealthBot. Okay. And then there'll be instructions given to you. So they all dutifully went and they added this friend. And a little messenger window popped up and it said, hi, my name is HealthBot. You know, I can help you with like diseases, diagnosis, drugs, whatever. And I left it there. Okay. Now what they didn't know is that actually I was HealthBot, right? So, so I actually, so, so they didn't know. They didn't actually know they were talking to me, right? But what they did was like very interesting. I still have the original chat uh, transcripts from that first experiment that I did. So these doctors would go, and I remember the first career that came was like, diagnose SLE. Okay, so it wasn't that even like... not an easy... You are a doctor, what does SLE yeah. stand for, right? Like, it's like medical acronym, yep. okay? So, I mean, I knew what it was. So then I just, I, I took it, I went to Google, okay? And then I typed diagnose SLE. Then I went to like a site that I knew doctors trust, like, I think it was Medscape. And then I copy and pasted like the, the section back into the chat window. And this went on like, you know, for whatever, an hour, two hours. And at the end of it, they were all like, this is amazing, right? I was like, that's great. What do you like about it? And they said, well, it's really fast, you know, and like, it gives me reliable information and it knows everything. And I was like, well, of course they didn't know it was me, right? So I was like, you know, that's great. Thank you for the feedback. But, you know, I learned something in my early days building stuff that a lot of times users lie to you, okay? They lie not because they're trying to be mean. They lie because they don't want to hurt your feelings, Okay, so you take it as a data point and you say, thank you very much. But what really got to me was that in the middle of the night, they started querying it. Okay, so like the experiment was over, I paid them, you know, we're done. 
And then I wake up in the morning, right, randomly, and I saw like all these unanswered queries from these random doctors that I found online. So I went back to them and I said, hey, you know, like the bot service is down and the experiment is over. Why were you trying to query the bot? And I remember the Vietnamese doctor saying to me, he's like, but I was on call. It's like two in the morning. And I really needed to know the dose of a drug for like this particular indication. And since the bot worked so well, I thought, I'll just ask, right? And, and when he said that, I was like, huh, huh, this is interesting, right? Because number one, nobody told you to come back. Okay, the fact that the user actually came back on their own without being prompted showed that there was probably something about it that they really genuinely liked, right? They didn't have to. So then I was like, okay, now how do I go like build this? Because I cannot possibly be like manning a bot for like all these doctors, right? And that's really where I found my co-founder. Mm. Okay, so I needed somebody who knew how to build like chatbots and like NLP, you know. So I was like, does anybody know anybody? And he had just come back from CMU in the US, PhD in CMU in AI machine learning. So I met him for lunch and said, hey, you know, we're, this is a hobby, you know, I have this idea. I don't know if it's going to work, but it seems like the doctors really like it. Do you want to build it with me? Uh, and he's like, okay. <laughs> and so, like, Did it we take literally, much to convince him? And that's just... It, he, I, I mean, he's, yeah, he's very academic too. And, like, I think, like, builders like building, right? If you meet people who have the same sort of inclination around, like, building cool things, generally, like, you group together and you work well together. So we... Started building it on like, you know, nights and weekends as a hobby. And then one day we were like, either we really do this, right? Or it will forever be a hobby. Okay. And then we're like, but how do we know if like, this is really a good idea for a startup? Right? Because, you know, there's so many ideas. And I myself have had many, many ideas. I mean, I worked on like so many startup ideas in my mind as hobby projects. Okay, I, I once built a computer vision mobile like app for diabetes patients to be able to like take photos of their food and be able to get like nutritional information. Yeah. And like that was just a hobby. So it's like fun. Like I, I really want to learn. Like, I want to learn AI, right? So I was like, how do I learn AI? I go online, take a class. So anyway, like you're like, how do we know if this, this idea is actually going to be anything meaningful? Right. Apart from the fact that the users seem to like it. So we're like, okay, well, let's go apply to Y Combinator, which is like, you know, the best accelerator program in the world. And if they like it, then it probably means that it's a good startup idea. Yeah. Yeah. Social proof. Right? Right? So yeah. we're like, okay, so we, so we applied and we got called up for an interview and we got in. Congrats. So then we were like, yeah. And actually, well, I mean, it's funny because I actually quit my job, like even before knowing we got in. Right, because I was so determined, and I said this to you. I was like so determined because I was so comfortable that I needed to like jolt my system again and do like a counterintuitive thing and like just leave. Okay, so if we explore like the counterfactual, and if you had not gotten to Y Combinator, what would what would did you know what you would do? Yeah, I mean, if I hadn't gotten into Y Combinator, I would still just gone and built it. Okay, you know, like I was that. Convinced by convinced the Convinced by the users. So we had we had users at the early stages, right? Where it was just me and YC, my co-founder. We had users from like Indonesia, Philippines, Venezuela. So I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool to be able to like build a product that like is already relevant, right? To users around the world. The second thing is that because we're a mobile app, we had the ability to reach users wherever they were. 
right? I intentionally didn't build a medical device startup because my experience working in large companies is like I had this love-hate relationship with supply chain, manufacturing, logistics. So like, I think it got to me to the point where I was like, if I go and start something, I don't want to have to deal with like supply chain, logistics, and distribution. So the only logical thing that I could do was to build software, right? Which gets distributed like online immediately, which is the reason why I didn't do a device startup. Even though I had been trained as a bioengineer and like my whole sort of like education around innovation has predominantly been in medical device, right? So yeah, I mean, I think like for me, like that was kind of cool to see. And I, and I, so I was convinced that like if users around the world found it useful, that it probably made sense for me to go figure out how to go build it out. And if I look back on like our early sort of like pitch decks, right, I think I would laugh because like, I mean, the thing about startups is that you learn new things all along the way and you would never have known it at that point in time. It's sort of a reveal as you go along, right? If you're truly, but I was just talking to someone about this, like you're truly building something brand new for the first time, right? Nobody has the answers. Right. This is different from like going and building something that already exists. If it already exists, you can more or less copy in and then you know it works, right? Like it's just like riffing, it's like riffing off of it, right? But if you're really building something that doesn't exist, nobody's going to be able to tell you that like what you're building is going to work or not. And nobody's going to tell you like how to build it for scale. So the only way to learn is to like either learn by proxy. So like seeing like what exists out there that might be similar or like just go and build it and then do the journey and it's painful but it's very instructive yeah so at the point in time when you were saying when you said you 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 had some validation for the idea and you wanted yes. to build it right how much uh okay this is a two-part question <laughs> right first of all how much coding knowledge did you have and secondly i think for for say if, if i would sure. put, yep. put myself in that yep. position I feel it's slightly fraudulent because okay, I I mean I don't know how to build the thing myself, and then it's just like oh my CTO okay yeah, right you, I, right my, my yep. okay this idea yep. you build it yep. like yep. what you know yeah my my yeah. involvement kind of yeah ends because of my lack of knowledge sure. like yeah. how did you where were you in this yeah. process so and how did you I that? guess the way that I always think about it is that innovation has to be multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. Okay, like it's very rare that you find a lone clinician innovator that can do everything on their own. There are, okay, so Tom Fogarty is a great example of that. Like he's, you know, an engineer and a doctor and like he tinkers and he builds his own stuff. But like that's rare, right? The majority of clinicians need engineers. And likewise, like business people need like engineers and they also need doctors, right? So... I mean, that's the biodesign methodology where you have like, you know, a team of very different people with different skills coming together and saying, let's work on problems and solve it together. So for me, like the training kind of like led to me saying like, I know I'm not going to be able to build this on my own because my level of coding knowledge is like MATLAB in like engineering school. <laughs> okay. Which is like nothing. Right. Yeah. So it's like, well, I can't, I mean, there's no way. So I need somebody. Right. And, and I think the other thing that's interesting about like white combinator, which I learned is that the value of a co-founder okay so like in my mind i'd always had this thing where it's like i'm gonna go be a single founder like you know i'm just gonna go hire a bunch of engineers and like build the thing and i'll be the founder right founder and ceo and you know when we apply to white combinator they say like you know we don't usually accept single founders and i never really understood why because in my mind it's like why not like if you want to go be a single founder you can hire a bunch of engineers to build the thing do it 
Yeah. Why do you need a co-founder, right? Like, why are they so insistent that you need a co-founder? And then I realized, having now done the journey for like three years, that I would never have survived it without a co-founder. Because <laughs> I think it's like marriage, right? It's like you... Nobody knows how sucky it is except for your co-founder because you're in it together every single day. And like, you know, I can tell my friends about it and like, you know, I can vent about it, but nobody will deeply understand me and the journey and the stage of the journey, the ups and the downs, except for my co-founder YC. And having him like in the journey for me is like, Yes, I don't think I would have been able to do it on my own. I'm so glad I have a co-founder. And so then I understood like why they were so like insistent that when you apply, you likely should have a co-founder. You really need like you really need somebody next to you. Keeping each other sane. Yes, keeping each other sane and like we are very different, so we complement one another, right? Like, I think the other thing is that, like you said, I mean, we, we have this great relationship where it's very yin-yang. We rarely overlap, okay? So, like, so he does all the tech, I do all the business and the product stuff. So we don't, like, step on each other's toes because, you know, I don't know enough about technology stuff and I trust him implicitly, right? So it's like, if he makes decisions on, like, technology use, right or wrong, it's his call, right? And likewise, if I make decisions on business model, pricing, you know, how we do certain things. He's not going to like challenge actually. He doesn't know either. So like in a way, like having that complimentary skill set for me has been great. And yeah, I, I guess I was always going to go find somebody, go build it. I didn't expect to find a co-founder. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose it was all just a old post hoc analysis, but it, it worked out very well in that, yeah. in all this complimentary. Yep. Yep, it yeah, it did. And, and in a way, like... Yeah, it's it's like a really interesting relationship too, right? A founding relationship is so different from like any normal friendship. Hmm. Can, what do you mean? It's like there's a depth to it. It's it's a shared experience and like it's sort of like it's like birthing a baby, right? It's like <laughs> literally this this startup is our baby and like is it ugly? Is it like, you know, does it have an extra thumb or finger? Like, what do we need to do about it? It's like, you know, it's like when you come together and you actually talk about stuff like yesterday, he and I were just chatting about like, you know, the future and like hiring and how we want to think about that. Yeah, you're really sort of architecting your own journey and you're doing it together. And it's like, it's a very strange relationship, I would say, in the sense that like, I can't describe it. It's sort of like being married, but not. Right. And, and okay, actually the analogy I like to use is like, you know, if you're married and you have a kid, mm -hmm. somebody will tell, okay, so if you're not married, you don't have a kid, you'll be like, yes, having kids is hard. Okay. Like conceptually, you know it, right? But you will not really know it until you actually have a kid. And the dimension of that, like, is undescribable. You cannot describe, right, the person who has never had a kid, like, what that is like. The only way you're ever going to know is if you actually have a kid. Mm -hmm. And startups are exactly like that. So like, I can tell everybody, I'm like, startups are really hard. The journey is very hard. And they're like, oh, yes, you know, it feels so bad for you. And like, yes, we're sure it's hard. But you won't actually know like how really hard it is until you actually go and do it. And so that journey that you're on with your founder, right, co-founder, is like, it's like that. You know? Yeah. Sometimes I think we're like going towards Mordor. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like... Frodo back yeah it's like it's like trying to like tr you know trudge along and like you know where you're going right but it's like it's a perilous journey mm. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's come back to sure. where you saw your role as a non-coding founder. Like Yeah, so I guess like for me it's always that I'm the person with the vision and the and the product mind. Okay, and let yeah. me sharpen the question okay. a little bit. Specifically at the in the very inception mm. when it was all about say building an MVP. Sure. What what do you see your role there as is doing? Okay, so I'm basically the person that builds the product. Right. So so I don't see, okay, so like, even though my title is like CEO, I always joke that CEO actually stands for like chief everything officer. You're really the product owner. Okay. Okay. You're like chief product officer. That's a word for that, right? Like you are the only person that can see where the future is and what the product looks like. Mm-hmm. And as the journey goes along you sort of evolve that. So at that point in time, at the very, very, very beginning, right, I'm the person that said, it would be a great idea if we could put an AI in the hands of every doctor around the world and specifically through a phone. Now, what will the AI do, mm-hmm. right? And that's really sort of my like, sort of role. It's like, what will the AI do, right? It's, it's in a way, you're the visionary, right? So... I mean, YC is like amazing at tech, but he doesn't know medicine, right? And that combo Mm. where I'm like, this is what we're going to be building. And he goes, okay. And then he builds it, right? Like, and then we kind of riff off each other, right? Like that's sort of what the role I would say that the CEO and founder like plays. Mm. Yeah. I see. Right. Yeah. Then, you know, at that point in time, right, just before you went to, just before you started all this, this company, sure. I'm sure you had a lot of other competing ideas in your head, but what was mm. it that made BotMD the one, you know? So, was it, was it yeah. this validation experiment? Like, it was a bit of the validation experiment and how like everything just fell into place, I guess. Like, so I, I believe in like being at the right place in the right time. And there's some things that you cannot create or predict. And it sort of like was one of those journeys which fell together. Like it just, everything worked. You know, I found a great co-founder. He had exactly the skill sets that I needed. Right. We got into Y Combinator. We had a product that seemed to have, you know, use for many doctors around the world. So it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, that's like a really good sign that Mm. whatever you're trying to work on is probably useful and and this is contrasted against other experiences where yes but i've tried to build stuff so like so okay so if we go all the way back to like when i was 18 years old and tried to start an alzheimer's diagnostic company for my apartment that was never going to go anywhere right like it's just it wasn't right that's one experiment i did and then of course along the way i did other experiments like you know we also did one where like when facebook first came out we tried to build a blind dating app on Facebook called <laughs> Blind Dateable. And I mean, I have a whole story on that altogether because I had a bunch of friends. I had a bunch of friends that when I was in college that like we kind of like the brainstorm together. We like were really good friends, right? So we always said, you know, we're going to start something and do it together. And so we actually like tried to create a blind dating app. So that didn't work. Then when I was living in like China, I really wanted to learn computer like vision and AI. So I started like building on my own, like an algorithm to be able to do image recognition. And I learned a lot in that journey of like how to teach computers, like how to see or like, you know, training a computer. Right. But the problem with the app is that when I prototyped it, I didn't get the same level of like user receptivity. Mm. Right. So they weren't like, like 
amazed by it. It was sort of like, okay, it's kind of cute, right? It's yeah. not it's not like amazing, right? And so so I kind of gave that up, right? So I had a lot of ideas like along the way where I kind of built it, tried it out, but it never really fit mm. till like bottom D. And I think what, what this whole, what listening to you tells me is that it's very important to have this as you were talking to me you know, previously sure. about low code tests. Yeah. Yes. And, yes. And this, this user yes. receptivity seems yes. to be really the key yes, that has correct. unlocked for you. This you need idea. to build, we call it low fidelity prototypes. Okay. So like, you know, last time when I was in China and we used to like, I had an innovation team in China for you know, this big company I worked at. So before I would give them money to like experiment, I would say, what is the zero dollar prototype? So if you can prototype with no cost, okay, then you do two things. One, you've already identified a minimum viable thing and assumptions that you want to test without spending any money. So you really get to the crux. It's like, it's like if I had to go test with no money, right? Like what would I test first? Mm. Right. How, how do I build something that doesn't require any money and doesn't require any coding to take away, you know, like assumptions off the table, right? Because in any new venture, you are making a ton of assumptions. Okay. Mm. Yes. And if you can, if you can build prototypes, that, you know, zero cost or like no coding or like low fidelity, you have very little lose. Yeah. And the yeah. biggest assumption is do people want it? Yes. So there's three questions. Number one, if you build it, does anybody want it? Number two, why should you be the person building it? Okay. What is your right to win? Okay. And number three, is it worth it? The is it worth it question is a very loaded question. Cause like, what do you mean? It's like, what do you mean by is it worth it? Is it like, you know, revenue opportunity is the size of the market. It's not, it's actually the fact that startups take about 10 years of your life. Plus like sleepless nights, near-death experiences, is it worth spending the next 10 years of your life on this idea, right? So the is it worth it question is actually beyond like, you know, is the dollar value there? Can you see the market opportunity? It's like, will you be wasting your own time building it? And for me, that's like the one thing that I value the most. I value my time significantly. So along the way in the journey of BotMD, we were about... Okay, so we, we, we finished like White Combinator in, in August 2018, moved back to Singapore in like September, and then we wandered around in the desert for about a year. Okay, and we tried a lot of stuff. I mean, you've talked to the guys who have been here since the beginning, like, they'll tell you, and like, we experimented all kinds of really random stuff. And sometimes, like, when we look back on the screens, you know, because I used to design on screens, and you look back on the screens and you see it, it's like, what were we thinking, right? But we were really wandering around the desert, okay. And one day, I had an epiphany. So, okay, so the reason why I'm wandering around the desert, let me give some context to that. So when I built apps, okay, or at least when I think about building products, you have a very good idea of when a product is really, truly useful, okay? Part of it is like what we call product market fit, Okay, and it's like, how do you know when you've hit product market fit? And there's a great definition of it by Mark Andreessen. He's like, you know you've hit product market fit when your customers are grabbing it out of your hands even before you're done building it. And they're throwing money at you because whatever you've just built and it's a half-ass like, sort of thing is something that they so desperately need 
right? And if you can reach that, then you know you've got something. Anything below that is like nothing. It's a binary thing. So it's like one or zero. I think a lot of startups make the mistake of like thinking that they've reached product market fit when they haven't, right? So for me, like I had this very like sort of clear bar, right? It's like when I say that doctors find it useful, what does it really mean? Well, I want them coming into the app like every day, if not every other day. I want them coming in on their own. I want my user base growing on its own. And in version one of bottom D, we didn't have that. So they were coming in, right? But they weren't coming in like daily or like, you know, in a very predictable sort of frequency, which really bugged me. Because I'm like, this is not a good app if it cannot bring a doctor in daily or every other day. So we got to try to figure out what features we should add, right? This is the logical thinking. And so we did that for about a year. And then randomly, so this is what happens to a lot of founders. You pick up patterns, right? So I, my cousin is a, is a doctor. And I remember she came to my office. She was at NUH at the time. She said, I showed her about me. And she said, you know, what would be really useful is if your bot could tell me who's on call. And I was like, what? That's such a weird, like, that's a really random thing to ask. I was like, you know, why? Right? And she's like, well, you know, as a, as a house officer, right, I have to like round and in the mornings when we round, like, they'll like tell me like bit, you know, number 43 refer to like hematology or like bit, you know, 67 goes to like cardiology. Should be there with a little post-it, like writing it down, right? And then what do you do after that? She's like, then I pick up the phone and I call the operator, right? And I say, who's on call in cardiology, like, you know, today? And then she gets the name of the doctor and the number and the name. And then I said, that's crazy. Like, shouldn't this information, like, be available on your phone? Like, why are you calling the operator, right? So I was like, well, I can do that. I said, yeah, I could do that. You know, it's easy enough to, like, train out. Yeah, AI can be trained on anything, right? Like, you just train it on that. So I, I remember, like, I was in church. It was September 2019. I still have the conversation with YC because, you know, it's like, why, okay, YC is the only person that I talk to every day. Like, every day. I think I talk to him more than I talk to my parents sometimes. Anyway, so, like, and we only talk on Messenger, which is the other weird thing. Okay, so the two of us, like, constantly in communication on Messenger. So I remember, like, I was in church. And I was, like, really annoyed. <laughs> so I was really annoyed at the fact that, like, that nothing seemed to be working, okay? And then finally, I, I said, you know, I suddenly had this epiphany. And I said, like, if we think about what doctors really need, it's not really information that already sits in Google, because everybody can get to Google, mm -hmm. right? The information that they need actually is stuff that sits in parts of the hospital where it's super hard to find. And if we were able to get that to them, like through their phones and through bottom D, it probably would be very useful. So I'm like, I text YC and I say, YC, I have an epiphany. I actually, I told him, I, was, I called it the Instagram epiphany. I was like, this is the Instagram epiphany. And it's a Sunday, right? Yeah, the filter. So on Monday... I called a team meeting and he, and he agreed with me. I mean, he, I said, you know, what we've been doing sh is shitty and like, we should really just re rebuild and like completely simplify the app. So he's like, note by the fact that we had been working on this like V2 version of Bondi for like easily six or nine months. Okay. So I had my, you know, my engineers like kind of building this thing. And so on Monday morning, I called a team meeting in this room and I said, guys, newsflash, we are going to abandon everything that we have done and we're going to start again. And there was silence in the room. Okay, so I had like five people and I actually remember because we're sitting in this room where you are right now. 
And I remember my, my Android mobile was like sitting there and I could just see his face was like, he was just like speechless, right? It's like as if Dot just came and like completely pulled the rug out of everybody's legs, right? And they're all like, what? And I said, well, number one, let's not waste everybody's time. Okay, like if we're building something and it doesn't work, we need to move on. But I have an idea of what I think might work. And I think that was where like the leap of faith really was because, you know, to be fair, it's like, how do you know it's going to work, Dot? And I'm like, I don't. I just feel like this is the right thing to do, right? And I can't explain why I think it might work, but we just have to like try, right? And I'm like, we have nothing to lose at the moment at this point, right? So let's try so we pivoted and started like integrating hospital content. Okay, so we launched uh, V, let's call it V3, okay? So V3 of BotMD in December 2019 with 20 young MOs and HOs from NUH. And we created all these little WhatsApp group chats because, you know, and so anyway, I actually made my cousin go and like find these 20 MOs. I was like, I need 20 MOs. Can you just go ask your friends to like come and, you know, learn about BotMD? So the curious thing that happens, like we created these group chats and, you know, reporting bugs and stuff that you want us to add. They started pinging me separately going like, hey, you know, I have another friend who like saw the app and said like, it's very useful. Can that person also join the pilot? Okay, so from 20, right, we started getting on and say, sure, like, yeah, then give me the name, the number, and, you know, department in December. In March, we had about 500. And we did no marketing. Okay, so we did no marketing, we did no training, right, no rollout. It was entirely by word of mouth. So when that started happening, I was kind of like, all right, well, if it works for NUH, I wonder if I can replicate this in the next hospital, right? So I went to Tantok Singh and said the same thing. I said, you know, I've got this thing, we can integrate your stuff. And they said, this is amazing. Why don't we have this? Like, okay, well, we can start, right? So by the time we got to June, we already had about 2,500, 3,000 users in Singapore only. And again, like, we didn't do anything to get them in, right? Up to today, actually, it's funny because, you know, now we are in NUH, Tanok Singh, CGH, starting KDPH, hopefully SGH soon. I have two very random stories. So one day, one of my investors, like, sends me a very long voice message on WhatsApp. And he doesn't do that. So I was, like, wondering what was up, right? So I listened to it and he said, hey, you know, I was also in church, right? And... I was wearing your bottom D mask, right? And some young lady comes up to me and goes, that's bottom D. How do you know bottom D? And he's like, wait a minute, how do you know bottom D, right? Then she's like, oh, I'm a doctor. <laughs> so he's like, he's like, I just wanted to pass along the message to you because it's like random people recognize your logo and like, they're all doctors. And I'm like, yes. So it's kind of cool, you know, it's like, in a way, like for me, that's the biggest satisfaction that we have. It's like we built a product that, yeah, doctors like and they recognize it. But it really took us a while to get to like that phase of the journey, right? So like where we are right now is like, how do we now like take this global? Right? We believe that, you know, we're solving a universal problem. Now, how do we put it in the hands of every doctor around the world? Right? So. But yeah, I wouldn't have like, I think a lot of the learning 
that I had from the ages of like 18 to like when I started OMD is like started around like 32. Yes, it really shaped sort of the way that I've built up the company, the team, right, the product. There's many lessons that you learn that come back and somehow get incorporated. You know, like it's just weird. Let's let's touch on that. Yeah. Um, a bit later, but but it seems like as you know, yeah, completely as you're saying that this is real product market fit. People taking taking yeah. the product out of hand, and and I think what's really interesting is that I mean, conceptually, if you if you told me that this bottom is AI in the hands of every doctor, and, and also the pilot experiment that yeah. you ran, it is as you were saying indexed information already on the internet, yeah. whereas really where where the product market fit was was in unindexed information, correct, and you wouldn't have known that. Correct. Straight away. Yep. Okay, this is a, a bit of a sidetrack. Yeah. Did you have a chicken head question where you needed like hospitals to unlock the information to give it to you before you Yes, you I mean, so, you know, obviously when I had the idea that, oh yeah, actually we should just like, you know, integrate the information that isn't indexed, I needed a hospital to be brave enough to try. Mm-hmm. Right? Because how else was I going to test whether or not this made sense? But I knew NUH pretty well. So, I mean, they were the first one that I went to anyway. So I said, hey, you know, I've got this idea. Do you want to try? Like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Plus, it'll be convenient for the doctors anyway. So, yeah, why not? So, yes, if we didn't have the chicken before the egg, in this case, the chicken being NUH saying, yes, we shall work together with you, it would have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you've enjoyed this episode, do consider subscribing if you haven't done so already or sharing this episode with your friends. I'd love for more people to benefit from this. If you've got something to say, you can always reach out to me at poll, that's P-A-U-L, at alternativecv.fm. Leave a review, get in touch, pick up the conversation, anything you want to talk about. You can also find show notes about everything that we've talked about and any references we've made at alternativecv.fm. See you next week. 